Hi, it's Jasmine. You know, that girl who did you know what way before the internet ever existed. Join me and my special guest every week as we talk about anything and everything because nothing is too taboo. So punch your ticket and get on board the crazy train with me, Jasmine Saint Clair. All aboard! Interesting. It's an interesting um, set of work that you do. You did K.K. Dowling's book, and then, of course, No Domain. Do you think there's a correlation between heavy metal and really interesting figures in um, pop culture or crime? Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I've never really thought about it uh, from that perspective. I mean, you mentioned K.K., but before that, there was Rex from Pantera. There was Nergal, who I know you know. These really came up because of my interest in heavy metal, which has always been there. That's always been my kind of point of entry. You see what I did there with the, the Judas Priest reference? That was my point of entry into writing because that's what I knew about when I was young. And when I got into this career that I'm in now, uh, that was the place that I knew I could write about. So obviously those books happened, but the, the McAfee one, for example, came about because I'm just interested in people. And John was, to me, one of the most interesting people uh, there is anywhere. And I didn't limit myself in any way according to what I'd done before. I was just like, hell, you know, <laughs> I'm going to contact him and see if he wants to do something. And the, the, the really funny thing about it was because he, he asked me uh, right at the beginning, send me some work, send me something to let me know that you're good, that, you're, that I should work with you. And that was quite a difficult thing to do. So I actually sent him a, a PDF of the beginning of Rex Brown's Pantera book, which is really gritty, really dirty and nasty. And, and it, it captures Rex perfectly, that kind of Texan thing. And, and Pantera was, a, as you know, is a, obviously, a, again, a sort of nasty story. And I, when I sent this, I thought, I have no idea what you'll think of this. And he came back to me straight away and said, you're the guy. So, you know, there is no connection, absolutely, between these these things. I think the connection is just me and me being willing to kind of cross over out of what I've been doing before and something new. And I'll be doing it again. I mean, you know, I, I've done sports co-writes as well. I, I just don't have any limits in terms of who I'd speak to and who, whose story I'd tell. Well, I thought it was interesting that you did the McAfee story. And by the way, any of you listening to this, you have to get no domain because i think it's the most authentic book i've ever read and you see all these stories and all these tv shows about john mcafee there was some female journalist that was engaging with him do you remember that in the tv show like yeah, I, I mean yeah. yeah there's been there's been a lot of that and you know most people when when they they talk to me about this they always mention the the gringo documentary that's out there I think it was Showtime that it went out on originally, but I think it's on Netflix now. And everyone says, damn, that guy's got a really cool story. But the, the reality is that that gringo only covers a very small portion of John's life. It's actually, the I, I don't want to say it's the least interesting part of his life, but it's only a tiny part of it. And the, the, the actual story of his life, as he told to me, was actually a lot more interesting. But the problem is people always default to that. They say, the guy's crazy. You know, he had girls defecate in his mouth through hammocks. He snorted bath salts, all that stuff. 
None of that was anything. We never discussed any of that. We we discussed the real John McAfee, and for that reason, that's why I think it's authentic. It is John uh, and John's life told to me. I read the book, by the way. I read most of it. I'm up to like almost done, but I'm not done. But I did realize that there was so much more to his backstory. And a lot of writers fail, I believe, in that one aspect as to like what makes someone act this way. And I do you consider yourself like maybe a psychologist of human behavior when you do this? Not licensed, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, no disclaimer, no license. Uh, it, it's, it's a good point because quite often people ask me, particularly when they're talking about writing, you know, what, what are the skills that you need to do what you do in terms of ghostwriting? Obviously, writing's one of them, but one of the others is psychology. You know, you have to, I mean, by definition, these people who are writing these books, I don't want to blanket them all and say that they've all got some degree of uh, issues. But generally speaking, if you're, you're writing an autobiography about your life, you're, you're coming from a place of ego, perhaps from a place of insecurity, all, all these things, and you've lived a complicated life. Sometimes you need a sounding board on the other side uh, to kind of get that out of you. And I have felt on many occasions, I'm just like a sort of paid shrink here, uh, which I don't mind because sometimes people don't understand themselves until you point out what it is about them that they do. And I've found that with quite a few people I've worked with. And John was, was another person. And John had lived a lot longer than I had. John was 25 years my senior. I really liked the fact that he was older and lived more life. But he, uh, he taught me so much in terms of wisdom. But at the same time, there was a couple of times I said things to him. And he was like, I'd, ne I'd never thought of that. I'd never understood that about myself. So, again, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I think there is a bit of psychology involved in, in doing this. You, you've got to be that person asking the difficult questions and saying, you know, why? Why are you like this? That's interesting because someone once told me that a while ago that was like attempting to do my autobiography, but then I stopped taking therapy. So I'm just looking at notes when I'm looking down, just so you know. Um, Okay, so we're talking about an LSD trip. So I read a lot of the things that John McAfee says, like he thinks this person is after him, that person. Do you think a lot of these things were real or do you think it might have been some sort of paranoia based upon perhaps one bad acid trip in his life? Good question. Uh, I think with John, it's hard to get to the truth. And, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be arrogant, sufficiently arrogant to say that I got the entire truth. I think I got a version of the truth. Uh, you're right. I mean, there was a bizarre cast of pursuers in his mind, uh, whether it be cartel members, whether it be the CIA, whether it be just random thugs, whether it be the FBI, there was all of that. I think there was. I, I genuinely think John had enemies, and I think a few of them probably were chasing him. But I also think there was a degree of paranoia feeding into it, something which he denied, actually, when I, when I raised it with him. He said, I'm not paranoid. And he made a pretty good case as to why he wasn't. He said, you know, when I said that computer viruses were going to happen back in the 80s, did they happen? Yeah, they did. You know, he, he, he could come up with sort of explanations as to why he wasn't paranoid. However, you know, this was a guy who was lying in bed with a shotgun with a finger on the trigger with literally one eye open. And, you know, that there's a, a degree of paranoia uh, kind of, powering you along if you find yourself in that situation. And he did tell me that, you know, you referenced this trip he had. And I mean, geez, this was 
1979, we're talking a long time ago, he had flashbacks. He told me the last flashback he had from that trip was in 2009 or something crazy like that. So yeah, this stuff stays with you. And, you know, who knows what it does to the wiring of the brain. Uh, and it may be that, you know, some, some of the pursuers were real, a degree of them were in his head. We'll, we'll never know. Yeah, it's really sad. And like I watched the documentary, he's pretty interesting. Now, there's so many different ways to go about this. And there's so many different questions I also have. I'm kind of jealous that you got to speak to him. And I, I see what you're saying between like Adam from, um, Behemoth. from, yes, from Behemoth. Yes, it's like it's all these things. And then K.K. Dowling, I mean, he's a very interesting people. It's a really cool collection of people. And, yeah. you know, even this, what did you do before this? And if you weren't writing, what would your career actually be? Playing golf or something? Or Yeah. Uh, what would I be doing? That's a good question. Well, I kind of reached a point in life where I was at a crossroads. I and mean, most people reach them. It sounds like a cliche, but I did. You know, death of a parent, divorce, business failure. This was all in about 2003. And, you know, you, you reach a point and you think, well, how, how am I going to pay the bills? Uh, how am I going to survive from, from this point onwards? And you, you look around and think, well, what, what qualities do I have? What can I do? I was lucky enough that I lived in a, still live in a town, St. Andrews, which is the home of golf. I always played golf. I always caddied. I caddied a little bit. And I thought, okay, I just need to decompress for a while. And, and the caddying story I've told before, I, I went out there and caddied for a couple of years on the old course, which is this famous place, you know, bucket trip destination for golfers. And at the beginning, I was just doing it to pay bills and to, to, to survive. But I started realizing that you get somebody on a golf course for four hours, you quite often, particularly if you're a decent communicator, which I think I am, you, you end up you end up being that sounding board for them for that four hours. They tell you their life story and you, you listen. And suddenly I thought, wait a minute, I could perhaps extend this into a new career. Uh, you know, I feel like I could understand people. And I always knew I was a good writer. My school teacher told me at school once, you know, you could be quite good if you ever showed up. Because I was one of these guys who didn't show up. I was, you know, I was in a heavy metal. I was into drinking. I just didn't show up at class enough. Uh, so I always had that in my head. But at the time, when you're 16... You know, the least sexy career you can think of is writing. You know, you, you, just, you just don't want to hear that someone thinks you could be a good writer because you think, well, how could I make money? You know, it's just not cool. So I just dismissed it. But 2003, when these things kind of collided, you know, the idea of working with people and writing, I thought, OK, let's see if I can do it. And from there, I kind of made my way, again, using heavy metal as the entry point and I always give a shout out to my, my good friend, Joel McIver, who's written books about heavy metal. Joel was the guy that introed me into the world because I badgered him and said, hey, how do I write reviews for Metal Hammer? And he basically said, oh, piss off. You've never done any of this before. I've been doing this for years. Go and practice. And eventually he gave in and started helping me. Uh, and it was from there that my first book deal came. So this all happened over a period of about three or four years. I wrote some really bad reviews for some very low-grade heavy metal websites. The kind of stuff that I, I, I wish you could delete from the internet. And please don't go looking for them, anyone that's listening to this, because they are genuinely some of the most naive reviews ever written. But I did that, and I practiced, and uh, it kind of went from there. That's very interesting. And I know that you're saying that... Uh 
John McAfee had approached you to write to him, correct? No, it was the other way around. I sent him a message on Twitter and said, hey, why have you never written an autobiography? Uh, and, if, you know, w would you work with me? And he said, how much will it cost me? And I said, it won't cost you anything. Uh, that is one thing it will not. It will not cost you money. We just need to have a conversation. And we had this awkward back and forth by email uh, during which I sent him that Pantera uh, sample that I told you about. And then eventually I said to him, listen, in order to, to make sure this is actually real, because bear in mind, John was in hiding at the time. He was on the run. I didn't know I was speaking to the real John McAfee. It could have been anyone. Yeah, it was a, a verified Twitter account, but you just never know. So I said, listen, I need to see your face on a screen. Uh, and sure enough, he called me on Skype. We only ever talked on Skype. And uh, we had our first conversation. And from that first conversation, I knew it was going to be a, a pretty wild ride. And I always got on really well with John from that moment. We had a couple of fallings out, but generally speaking, we got on really well. That's interesting. Again, that's like my favorite term because he is interesting. And just everything you've told me about yourself and the cross between heavy metal and someone like John. And he's sort of an enigma because nobody ever really understood like his childhood relationships with his parents. And yep. this whole thing with the defecation into women's mouth, I mean, for women to defecate into his mouth, where do you think that might have come from? Do you think it might have been the relationship he had with his father, where he might have been degraded that way, and it's just another theme that continued into his life? Good, good point. I don't even know if the defecation by women into his mouth ever happened. Uh, but I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. But his relationship with his father, I think, informed every moment of his life thereafter. Uh, his father was abusive, just to give people who don't know and who haven't read the but yeah, he was abusive, he was an alcoholic, he beat him, he beat his mother. And, you know, John felt controlled by this guy. And then his father committed suicide when John was 15. Uh, and I was sort of hesitant to talk to him about this. I, I didn't want to sort of upset him. And I said to him, well, how did you feel when your, your father did that? And he said, actually, pretty good. You know, I was like, whoa, okay. I, I explain. And he said, well, you know, that was, I knew that at that moment that the last person that was ever going to control me in my life was gone. And from that moment onwards, John lived a, a life where he was controlled by nothing. And I think if, if you're looking for a theme in the McAfee life, it's complete nonconformity, complete, I mean, just literally being blown by the wind of, of the universe in whatever direction it blew him. Uh, I mean, granted, it helps if you have money. But even when he didn't have money, he just allowed the universe to dictate where he went. And that all started when his father died. So, you know, drug trips, buying and building crazy houses, opening labs in Central American jungles, all that stuff, that was just part of the same thing. I'm going to do what I want in, in my lifetime and uh, no one's going to tell me what to do. And that was John McAfee. Yeah, I kind of picked that up from the show. I sort of felt that Vice, first and foremost, like Vice has some good writers and some really crappy ones. They once stole a video interview I did and transcribed it. And whoever the writer was said that it was their work. Long story. Yeah. But I think they're pretty much hacks for the most part. Um, they went ahead and they disclosed his location do you think that was done on purpose and maybe they're possibly in cahoots with the federal government or 
No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, just on Vice in general. I mean, anyone watching that that uh, documentary should know that it's a hit job. That 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 documentary was 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 uh, came from a place of dislike uh, for the people involved in making it. I don't need to name them. They they know who they are, and, and they definitely know me. But the the people involved wanted to to paint a very negative picture of John and that's the right and but it's up to the viewer to kind of look at it all and say okay you know what what's the real story here but the story about the 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 vice journalists and I know both these guys one of them Robert King who's a photographer is a good friend of mine Rocco Castoro who was the the other journalist down there he's out there on Twitter and I'd like to say that I think Rocco is a friend as well what happened I think was an accident I think these guys uh, were perhaps a little bit Kind of starstruck in that moment. There they were. They found they found themselves in the center of this this incredible story that was basically happening in real time. John was documenting his escape through Central America online, uh, and it was exciting. And they found themselves in this hotel, and they wanted a picture at the swimming pool. Here we are with McAfee. It was a great headline. It's out there. You know, here we are with John McAfee. But in their urge to get this picture out, they forgot to do the basics of scrubbing the, the geo data. I think it was a genuine error. I think it was done from a place of enthusiasm, uh, a place of, hey, this is awesome. I can't believe we're here, but we, we, we dropped the ball on the details. Uh, I don't think there was any malice intended whatsoever. Uh, but it did cause a problem because what it meant was that instead of being somewhere safe, and hard to find for a few weeks, John had to, to, to keep running. It's got to be so tiring, like just being on the run. I don't understand if he's on the run like that. There are certain countries, everyone, that don't necessarily have an extradition treaty with the USA, such as uh, Moldova is one of them, uh, Santome, which is in yeah. South in Africa. Where else has a non-extradition? Those two, and probably other places you really don't want to go, but Moldova is gorgeous. I mean... Yeah. Should have gone there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think. I don't know if John thought it through that much. I mean, I, I, in my. I mean, we're talking about late in 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 his later years, and he was in Spain ultimately uh, when he was arrested. Spain would have been the, one of the more dangerous places to be. It's Western. Uh, they don't like tax dodgers. It was obvious that he was probably going to get caught there. By the way, I didn't know he was in Spain when I was talking to him because he never told me, but. You know, when you look back on it now, Spain was actually a very risky place to be. There were there are other places in Europe you could have been, uh, as you mentioned, Moldova's one, Serbia's another, Montenegro, any of these places. You could probably hide away quite easily and never be found. And if it came to trying to extradite you, it probably wouldn't happen. But Spain was risky. And that was John as well. John, John took risks. Uh, and the way he was actually discovered in Spain was because, you know, he liked to take videos and send pictures out there onto the internet, almost as if he's taunting the authorities, you know, here I am, you know where I am, come and find me type of thing. But of course, there's always people out there who are taking photographs of sparkling, you know, sparkling water bottles on tables and establishing which grocery store they came from. And that's what happened. Somebody saw this brand of water that you could only buy in a grocery store in, outside of Barcelona, and they tracked him down from there. So John took risks, and uh, he got caught because of that. I think that there are a lot of people that maybe glommed onto him 
<clears throat> for their own selfish reasons, such as perhaps maybe one of the research people that he had, one of the girls there. And I'm not bashing on women. I'm not bashing on any girls. I'm just bringing this up because there's an ongoing theme. First, you have this female writer who is like messaging him back and forth, which I feel he never should have engaged with first and yeah. foremost, because she just seemed like she was out for her own agenda. Then the research assistant that was there. Okay. So if you're so scared to just bolt out of there in the middle of the night, it really shouldn't be that difficult. How secure was that Island? Like how in danger were people really, if they tried to leave? Yeah. Belize is a pretty lawless place. Uh, just, just to let people know we're talking about appeared in John's life when he was in Belize between 2008 and 2012. Uh, Belize is a kind of schizophrenic place. One part of it where he was originally is very Western, very white, very American, very wealthy. And he was there for a while, as John always is, places like that, enjoying himself, doing his thing. And then John, as John always did, got kind of itchy and thought, well, you know, why can't I go into the interior of this country? And kind of sort some shit out there. So he went into the jungle, uh, despite advice from, from people, uh, all his friends, and set up a compound in there and started trying to mess with the local drug trade. You know, he was trying to save women from the drug trade, trying to clean things up in an area that was totally black. There wasn't a white person in there. Here's this gringo down there, as he called himself, wealthy. But the problem was the drug trade in Belize was run by the government. And all of a sudden, here's this rich white guy meddling with their business. So for him, it became very risky. Talking about his assistant, I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, if it was that bad and, you know, things weren't working out, you just leave. There was, there was nothing to stop her leaving, and she, she ultimately did leave. It was some years later that she mentioned the, the incident that's in the documentary, but... John's situation became difficult because he was accused of murdering his neighbor in Belize. And all of a sudden, you know, you can't just walk across borders. You can't just get on planes. The government are chasing you. He had to find other ways uh, of getting out. And that, that, was, <laughs> that involved going in disguise. So, you know, Belize, for, for you and I, if we went on vacation down there, it'd probably be cool. But if you start meddling around with the sort of the, the nitty-gritty of this, this kind of place... It's going to come back and bite you. And once it does, things get pretty gnarly down there. Yeah, I could tell. It looked like a really cool place. In fact, I had a friend that went to Belize to live there years ago. We never heard from her afterwards. I'm not sure what happened. But that sounds scary. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Sounds but... scary. <laughs> it's no big deal, you know. Yeah. yeah. She was an American girl, a, a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl, so... Yeah, I mean, it's just one of these places, you know, that what, what we take for granted as normal in the West, in the UK or the US, the r rules don't apply down there. You know, if somebody wants to throw you in jail for no reason, they'll do it. Mind you, that'll happen in the US as well nowadays, so, yeah. I love the Scottish light on you, by the way. I just have to say that. Because Thank you. anyone that knows me knows that Europe is my second home, and it's the most beautiful place in the world. And I feel it's probably the best place to write books. So when you heard from John, did you feel as though maybe it was a sign from above or wherever, whatever you believe in, that maybe you should start writing more crime or more, uh, more about other interesting people? Yeah. Well, I didn't think it. 
I, I just did it. But you're right, it is an interesting place to do it from because there were there were many moments where I had to kind of catch myself and think, wait a minute, here 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 I am in my little Scottish house uh, on a farm in the middle of nowhere on a on a computer screen talking to John McAfee and who knows where he is. This can be done, you know. There there is nothing to stop me doing this with anybody, you know. And this was all pre-COVID and and before the whole everyone's on Zoom and all that kind of stuff. We were just doing Skype, but even more so since then. I've realized you can talk to anyone, you can get to pretty much anyone. In fact, I have got to pretty much anyone in the last two years about a whole manner of things. So, yeah, to answer your question, to me, this is a kind of dream situation. I can be where I am, remote from people. If I have to travel, I do. But I can write all the books I want in not necessarily crime. I am more interested in kind of world affairs, uh, Politics is a is a direction I've been dragged in. Uh, I, I don't mind saying that uh, I, I did some work with Steve Bannon pretty recently, and again, you know, that's the kind of thing you can do sitting here. And uh, I see myself. I've thought about the metal thing often. There isn't really anyone in the metal business that if they emailed me and said, "Hey, do you want to write my book?" I would be excited about it. That's not to put anyone down. It's just a I can't think of any real great stories out there in heavy metal anymore. And the ones that have, that have been told are great. But I am interested in, you know, I'm getting all kinds of people contacting me that have been in sort of weird business situations or sort of vaguely scandalous positions or, you know, that have got stuff I would describe as kind of leak-worthy material, all that kind of thing. Do you know the kind of world I'm talking about? Just sort of intrigue. And I can't, can't deny that's exciting. You know, I get these approaches and, 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 and uh, requests, and it's exciting because I know that I can do them from here. I don't, you know, there's no limit. I don't, it's not like I have to be somewhere to do it. If somebody wants me to travel somewhere to meet in person, I'll do it, but I don't have to. You're so lucky. You're so Yeah, lucky. I do feel lucky. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, and as long as these stories are out there and, you know, People seem to want to read these kind of books. The McAfee book has been really eye-opening for me because, you know, so many people have sent me messages and, and, and said, damn, I didn't know anything about this guy and how the hell did you end up working with him and all that kind of stuff. And the answer is, you know, if you want something to happen in your life, in your career, and I tell people this when I get a lot of communication from people who are trying to write for a living, you've got to make stuff happen. You can't just wait for stuff to land in your lap. You need to you know, be thinking about what you want to do and how you make it happen. And I'm a, I'm a real exponent of that. I'm always hustling. Yeah, I get that whole thing. It kind of, it sort of irates me in a way where people are just like, oh, if you think it, it'll happen, just put it out there in the world and you could manifest it. It's like, no, you have to get, get off your couch. You know, these kids today wear freaking pajamas going to school and in the street. And in fact, in an Uber not too long ago, the woman was telling me that she manifested her pregnancy. I said, no, you didn't. You spread your legs. You got fucked and you got pregnant. That's how you got pregnant. That's, that's yeah. how this happens. I know I probably got like one star. My Uber weight, my Uber rating went like down from that day. But there's one thing that really actually a couple of things. First and foremost, that whole suicide. I don't believe that he was murdered only because I followed the Epstein um trial very closely and I actually possess the original Epstein flight logs another story for another day but 
what do you think of the suicide? Do you think it's someone from the um, from this guy's family that got to him through jail? They might have put $500 in a commissary, then they got to John McAfee and murdered him. What could it be? What's your theory? I'm going to stop you there for a second. So, do you think Epstein's still alive? Huh? You think Epstein's still alive? Oh, no, I just said I have his flight logs. If I think he's no. alive, okay, let me think. Um, do I just... I, no, the reason I'm saying that is because I, I've heard from a number of people. I mean, I, haven't, I don't go trolling around the internet looking at QAnon, but I, I've heard from some pretty well-informed people they think he's still alive. I think the guy with crypto, with Bitcoin is still alive. Um, I don't know if this guy is still alive. If Epstein, I think he's dead. I mean, the, his, his friend only got 20 years, but if you saw who some of those people were on the flight logs, and by the way, kudos to working with Steve Bannon. He's actually my old neighbor. Um, so I, I still have the flight logs and you look at the, you look at the logs, right? And then you see, all these names of so many underage girls on these flights and some of the people that are on there are with those girls and yeah. you have to, I mean, it's, it seems to me that's the smart thing. What do I know though? I, um, do you think he's alive? I don't, I don't think he's alive. I don't think so. But my point is I wouldn't rule anything out at this point in life. I mean, life has got so crazy. I, somebody told me he was still alive and living on the moon. I'd say, yeah. Okay, cool. Anyway, back to McAfee. Yes. Uh, at the beginning, I thought he committed suicide. And the reason I did was because I think John got tired. He was in there. He'd been in jail eight months, lost a lot of weight. He told me, and he told me a couple of times, if I ever end up back in a U.S. jail, I will just disappear. And John had an ego, you know. And the idea of John McAfee, the McAfee antivirus guy, the you know, the larger-than-life character, the idea of him being in some jail in Iowa or somewhere, nobody knowing who he is or what he's doing, that would not appeal to him. So when I heard the suggestion that he committed suicide, I, I thought it unlikely because he was a guy who tried a couple of times in his life to not die. He faked death, etc. So I could see it could possibly happen. Then as time's gone on, we're now a year out since he died, and basically nothing happened in that year in between uh, nothing of consequence. His body's still in a morgue. His, his wife Janice has only seen the body through a window and only seen his face. You know, by, by default, you find yourself thinking, well, all right, if, if he had committed suicide, why would you just not release the remains? You know, John's body gets shipped back to the U.S. and he has a funeral. Or, or say that, you know, there's no more autopsy necessary and this is what happened. But that hasn't happened. What has happened is absolutely nothing. And the longer nothing happens, the more persuaded I can be towards some kind of foul play. Now, as far as, as, far as who could have committed such thing, you know, the list is endless. And I would have thought the least likely people would be the family of Gregory Fall who, who died in Belize. You know, I don't know all the contacts John had. I know some of them were pretty dark uh, in the sort of dark web uh, type realm. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't rule out anybody. But is it possible that, as you say, somebody could have paid somebody something to do something? Yeah, probably is. Probably is. The other suggestion I've heard is that John is still alive uh, and that he has found a way somehow and 
if anyone could, he would, to fake his death in prison and is out there somewhere. As to which is which of these is true, you know, God only knows at this point. I think it's possible that he's alive. Maybe he's with the Bitcoin King, but I'm pretty sure he must have had some form of money stashed somewhere. At least that's what I would have done, you know? And I think he would have been smart about it. And on that note, his poor wife, who I just don't like the rap people give her, like, who cares how she met him? Who cares what she was doing when she met him? He loved her. She loved him. They don't judge each other. And they accepted each other and they got married. I mean, heck, if, if yes, the pros were like, it's, it's a perfect thing, you know? I agree with you totally. And one of the things that really irritated me was a lot of the articles that came out. And it was just a way of kind of, it's just a way of, of kind of presenting somebody a bit like they did with the, the, the Showtime documentary. If you, if you put a headline out there saying John McAfee with his ex-prostitute wife, you, you create an impression in someone's head and you know you're doing that and you're doing it for a specific reason. You're doing it to denigrate both him and her. Uh, but as you say quite correctly, who cares what she did before? They met, they struck it off as a, as a, as a partnership. They loved each other, and frankly, who cares? And I've actually picked a couple of journalists up on that and said, you know, you, you can do better than that because it really doesn't matter what Janice did before. Janice is a good person. Uh, I, I dealt with her reasonably extensively while we were doing the interviews, and she was always great, and, uh, you know, I've got so much time for her. In terms of whether John would have told her everything about what he was doing, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking about the possibility of him staying, still being alive. I couldn't guarantee that. John, if he had to, would tell nobody. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. If I had to, if I had to sort of nail my colours to the mast on this, honestly, I'd probably say he committed suicide, and there's a legal dispute over the remains, and it's a sad end. That that would be my. If I had to bet all my life savings on that, that's why I'd be. That's where I'd be at. I would say, this is just my theory, um, just because I have these fairy tale fantasies all the time, and everyone knows this, okay. um, it's adorable. Oh, wow. I would say that he tells her because it's this whole thing of where you're in this world where people judge you all the time, right? So I have the hots for this guy that literally cuts himself and almost to the point of death when he wrestles, because it's pretty sexy, and he wears a kilt sometimes. So, like... I'm, I'm okay. The killed, yeah. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, yeah, that's like today's thing. Maybe the last for another month or two. This whole fascination. But the thing is, you, you, we're in a society where people are so eager to judge people and go into cancel culture. So I, my ideal situation is that he's with her somewhere, and I would love to speak to her because I, I want to know what her backstory is. And you know, obviously, people connect on some level. You know, you can't go by assumptions and so forth. I wonder what life for her must have been like. And does she ever feel like she's in danger because of what he allegedly did in Belize to that man? Well, there, <laughs> it's interesting because in, in, in the latter part of the book, John discusses how Janice was actually in cahoots with the people who were trying to get him from Belize. Janice's pimp in the U.S. was approached by people in Belize to try and have John collected. So there was a good chunk of their relationship, as much as they were married and as much as they were kind of 
Bonnie and Clyde in some respects charging around the US, there was a big, big, big part of John that didn't trust Janice. In fact, one of the stories that I like to tell and people always ask me about is the one where one, on one of our early calls, John was sitting there. I mean, we always did it on video and John usually didn't have a shirt on. Whatever. It was, it was awesome. And he asked Janice for a coffee and she brought him a cup of coffee put it down to the table and he held his hand up and said, stop there, stop, stop there. And I was like, what's going on here? And he said, Janice, drink that coffee, please. And so she drank the coffee, put it down. Obviously, she didn't drop dead. So that was his signal that it was okay to drink. Now, that could have been for show. And if it was, it worked because I thought that's so, that's crazy, crazy. But I do think there was still a bit of suspicion there with John. He couldn't fully try. In fact, he told me he couldn't trust Janice and that he couldn't trust himself. Are we going back to paranoia from the, 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 the acid trip days? Maybe we are, but you know, the bottom line is Janice and he were in love. They were very close. That's still evident. Uh, a lot of people like to bring up that they actually divorced in 2019. That did happen, but who knows what John's financial situation was. Maybe he was protecting her from potential debt, potential, you know, uh, exposure to some of the things that he was going to take the fall for. Who knows? I don't think it's a big deal. I wouldn't read too much into it. They were clearly in love. And uh, she's clearly, having seen one interview with her and being in touch with her, she's clearly deeply distressed by the whole thing, understandably so. I think that if, if people believe that he killed himself, there should have been a better watch on him, regardless of what he did. And there's no proof yet that he really did murder that guy. You know, we don't know that. So he was never he was never convicted. He was never charged with anything. It was a it was a he was a person of interest. I grilled him on that, and you know, as you talked about body language and psychology and all these kind of things are part of my remit. And I, I looked into the blacks of his eyes as we were talking about that incident in Belize. I don't believe he killed that man in Belize. I don't think that's what happened. I think he was framed. I think the government framed him because he was a pain in the ass. I think, I just don't think it happened. Now, I do know for a fact that some people in his immediate family think he did. So, you know, there's always going to be the jury out on it. But I, I, I was of the view John didn't kill that man in Belize. And I'll always be of that view until somebody proves it differently to me. There's also a lot of jealousy as well, I'm sure, being in a place like that where people wish they could have a life like his. And also amongst family, too. I mean, family could be like your worst enemy and your harshest jury absolutely. in reality. <laughs> you know? You're absolutely right. But uh, you know, Janice is somebody, I think Janice might talk to you. I mean, let, let's be honest, you probably face the kind of judgment sometimes that she does uh, for slightly different reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think you could have a good conversation. So, I mean, off the record, on the record, I'll, I'll see if she'll talk to you. I'd love to. It'd be like girl talk anyway. And besides, between us, and I could say this here because most people know this and statute of limitations have passed on my end, is if any man should be afraid to pick up a drink between me and Janice, it should be for me if I hand it to you and you've done something to really cross me. Yeah. So I don't think Janice is that type of woman, but a lot of people also say the same with Eze, the late great Eze of NWA, the girl that was with him. 
supposedly put something in his IV. He didn't know her that long. And all the stuff was signed over to her. So there's always conspiracy theories behind stuff. Yeah. And I'm sure she wouldn't have done that. Do you even know how he met his late wife, the latest wife? Who? Janice, like how John and Janice had met. I'm, I'm curious, like how did that even happen? Did he just go I'll up? Tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, John came back from Belize, literally landed in Miami, walked to a hotel, and she was sitting outside with one of her friends uh, and asked him if he wanted any business. And he said, I don't want any business, not looking to get laid, I just want someone to have a cup of coffee with and maybe have a cuddle with. And so they ended up going back to a hotel, uh, didn't have sex, wasn't that kind of transaction. They just spent the night together. John said it was the first time I'd been in a nice hotel for three or four years. I just want someone to be there with me. And that was it. They were together ever since. My God, this is such a love story. It's yeah. like, it's not a Sid and, it's not like a Sid and Nancy type thing, but it, it's sort of those, maybe. No, I, think it's, I think it goes down to the sort of, the very sort of primal nature of, of human attraction. I mean, it really doesn't matter what your background was. She didn't give a shit who he was. She'd never heard of him. Because she asked the doorman at the hotel, who's, you know, who's that guy that just walked past me? And the doorman said, oh, it's John McAfee. Just come back from Belize. She said, oh, I've never heard of him. Doesn't look like he's got any money, she said. And uh, so it, it was just literally two personalities kind of thrown together. And he said to me, you know, I, it wouldn't have been my choice. I wasn't going out looking for Janice. Just the universe threw us together. And uh, I think the best relationships get, kind of get thrown together like that. Right. God, I'm just waiting for mine. I mean, Charles Manson did it. John McAfee did it. So can I. Like, I'm hoping. But what do you think the smartest thing John McAfee has ever told you? And his maybe some advice or something? Yeah. No, that's another another good question. Because John, I, I kind of needed, I didn't need a father figure. My, You know, I got a lot from my father. who's long, long, long passed away. But my father wasn't a sort of international traveler and a sort of, bon viveur like John was, didn't have the experience. And I, I think John knew that I was leaning on him for a bit of a father figure type thing, albeit, you know, we're not that far apart in age, you know, good bit younger, but he knew that I was feeding off his philosophy. Uh, and equally, I think he quite liked that I was there doing that. We had a kind of symbiosis that I think was quite healthy. But I just think John's and it goes back to what I said before, that this willingness to not really give a shit what anyone thinks about you, not give a shit what anyone thinks about what you're doing for work, what you're doing with your life, just literally to do what you want to do was the best advice he ever gave me. I mean, he just didn't care what, what people thought about what he did. And I've spent quite a lot of my life caring a little bit, uh, not so much in recent years, but there's something very liberating about not caring what people think about what you do and what you think and all that kind of thing. And I think when you do that, it's an enormous weight off your shoulders. I, I spend no time whatsoever worrying about what friends, family, really anyone thinks about what I do or what, what I think. I, I think when you get to that point, uh, you're actually living. And I think John reinforced that to me. I think he lived the ideal life in many ways that a lot of people listening to this and not listening to this want to be which is to be free and that's the greatest freedom ever you could have in any lifetime is just to do whatever you want to with no real um you know consequences and so forth there is, there is a caveat to that and i did raise that with him uh, and that's that he had 190 million dollars when he decided to do precisely nothing 
in from about 1992 onwards. Because if I tried to live that kind of life, you know, I'd be homeless in sort of 48 hours type of thing. I'd be, I'd be begging somewhere if I was trying to live this free life. If you've got a load of money, it's easy to live free. That 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 is that much is true. But even still, the ideology of wanting to live free, I think, is one that we can all in all all practice. You don't have to go and build houses. You don't have to go and buy islands. You just need to free yourself from the the kind of just the belief systems that are so baked into human nature now that we don't even know we feel them. You know, we we you know it's like clothing. I remember when I was younger, and this is a little story that I'll, I'll just tell. I used to worry about, you know, should I wear a button-down and chinos and all that kind of thing. And I used to think it mattered. And I used to think if I went to my local town, people would actually give a shit what I was wearing. It just doesn't matter. And, and stuff like that just doesn't matter. And I think the moment you free yourself from all that kind of stuff, life gets a whole lot more fun. Yeah, but you don't strike me as the type of guy that would go outside in, like, your pajamas, like what a lot of people grown and young do today like i gone are the days of like dressing up and wearing actual you know clothing to go in the street i still do still do it but uh, i think that the thing is i wear what i want to wear like for example i'm wearing a flotsam and jetsam t-shirt from 1984 at this point in time because i want to and i think it's just you want you do what you want to do and uh john mcafee definitely taught me that that's the way to approach life and uh People have said, what can you get out of this book? And there's a lot of things you can get out of this book. But I think if you read it all in one, you can read it like a beach read. It's fun. You know that. There's lots of fun stories. It's wild. A lot of it makes you think, what the hell is this guy doing? This is crazy. But if you want to read it on a slightly different level, there's another layer to it. And it's sort of philosophy about life, philosophy, philosophy about human nature, how, why people do the things they do. I think that, you know, if, I'm, if I was going to sort of top my own product up to try and sell a few it would be that this book can be read in a couple of different levels and uh, all of them I think are really healthy. Yeah, I think it's a great book and I hope everyone reads this. Get it. It's no domain. It's on Amazon and everywhere. Yeah, you can get it in Barnes and Noble, all all the usual places. Just go out and get it and you know, you know, submit a few hours of your life to John McAfee because I genuinely think he gave me something he hasn't given anyone before or, or may never well, he certainly won't give anyone <laughs> again. Uh, there will be other books on John, but I don't think any of them will be like this. No, they totally won't. They will not be anything like this whatsoever. And do we have a movie works in the deal? Like yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, Amanda Milius, who, whose father is John Milius, Apocalypse Now, Conan the Barbarian, all these kind of things. She acquired the rights. And I'm, I'm very happy she did because I like Amanda. She's an absolute trooper. Uh, her movie on the Trump presidency, the plot against the president is excellent. Uh, she really gets McAfee and that, that type of strong man. And there is a movie and a documentary coming. Don't know the exact timings, but just stay tuned. I'll be talking about it on Twitter and all that kind of stuff when it happens. So exciting yeah. stuff. We'll be pushing it for sure. So I appreciate your time and thank you. You didn't have to turn the camera on for me, but I super appreciate it. I like to have the camera on for people so they just know I'm real. But yes, this this has been a complete honor, and I love your work and your writing. Likewise, huge respect for what you do, always have done. Uh, and I know that we've got friends in common in the metal world, and that's very cool. So anything I can do to support you, I will do. Thank you. So if anyone right. wants to look you up anywhere, could you just let them yeah. know? Yeah, Twitter. Twitter's the place. Uh, I'm on the other. There's another social media getter, which is the... 
well, I don't know what you call that, free speech, a bit more of that stuff. I do a bit more political stuff on there, but my, my main focus on my socials is Twitter. And uh, anything I'm doing relating to McAfee or new projects, uh, that'll be where I post about it. So give me, a, give me a shout out there. Thank you so much for your time. And don't forget to pick up No Domain. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hold Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. Oh, yeah.